conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim This week on the Project Censored radio show We sit down with Fiore Longo of Survival International To discuss the colonialist and racist realities of so-called conservation Not least of all in the case of our own country's beloved national parks She highlights the current forced eviction of the Maasai from their ancestral lands and speaks to the need of shifting our paradigms on both ecotourism and conservation, pointing out that removing tribal and indigenous peoples from an ecosystem not only harms the biodiversity of that place, but of course perpetuates violence against these people. The so-called Global North's perspective of tribal and indigenous peoples must change, not only for the sake of human rights, but in a very real sense, for the sake of biodiversity and climate justice. There's no such thing as cuddly colonialism, and there's no such thing as green capitalism. Later in the show, we're joined by Jimmy Dunson, co-founder of Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, to discuss the importance of community preparedness for extreme weather driven by climate chaos and of relational infrastructure. We also discuss his upcoming book, Building Power While the Lights Are Out, about mutual aid, disasters, and dual power, published by Rebel Hearts Publishing. All this coming up on Project Censored Radio. Welcome to the Project Censored radio show. We are very glad right now to be joined by Fiore Longo, who's a campaigner at Survival International, the global movement for tribal peoples. She is also the director of Survival International France and Spain. As part of her master's degree in cultural anthropology, she carried out field work with the Mapuche indigenous people of Chile. She coordinates survival's conservation campaign and has visited many communities in Africa and Asia that face human rights abuses in the name of conservation. She has also visited indigenous communities in Colombia and worked on survival's uncontacted tribes campaign. Fiore, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So I wanted to specifically uh, start by discussing what happened on June 8th. Dozens of police vehicles and an estimated 700 officers arrived in Loliondo, North Tanzania, near the world-famous Serengeti National Park to demarcate 1,500 square kilometers of Maasai land as a game reserve. Uh, And this uh, kicked off a lot of violence uh, in, in efforts to evict the Maasai. 18 men and 13 women were shot, 13 wounded with machetes. One person was confirmed dead. Police then went house to house in Maasai villages, beating and arresting those they believe distributed images of their own violence or took part in protests. A man aged 90 was beaten by police because his son was accused of filming the shooting. Uh, Fiore, I, I, I would love to, to hear what, uh, what the status of this situation is uh, today. The situation is still um, pretty bad for the Maasai. A lot of them uh, practically had to leave the country. Um, What I mean is that they have to escape in Kenya. Um, Several of them, especially the ones who were bounded by the, they they were shot, couldn't get medical treatment in Tanzania and have also to go to Kenya to the hospital. But most of the people that are now um, escaping are human rights defenders who are scared, or all Maasai leaders who are scared of the police repression. Also, we have a lot of people that are 
leaving their own houses. So they are still in Tanzania, but they're camping in the bush because they are scared of the police repression in their own country. So we, we think there are an estimated of 2,000 people, of Maasai people that have to leave their villages and now are camping in the bush. And we have a hundred of them that are human rights defenders, political uh, representative of the Maasai, councillors, leaders, and had to leave to Kenya. So the situation is quite catastrophic. I always remind to people that these uh, are indigenous peoples. The Maasai depend on the land for living. So if they can't work the land, if they can't graze, if they can't do the things they do every day uh, in their land to feed themselves, they don't have any food. So by now we have, as I say, a humanitarian catastrophe, people without food, without medical treatment. Yeah, and I, I, I'm very glad that you highlighted that because it is something that I don't think people oftentimes think about because very few people in the United States or in Europe uh, live off the land in that way. And in Africa, it seems that this is not a very uncommon occurrence. I saw in Survival International, it also covered things happening in Botswana with a game reserve that, that is forcing Bushmen out of their ancestral homes and ways of life. Um, and you've talked about this specifically and how this violence is, is talked about in the media or in policy as a push for conservation but that this really only highlights the colonialist and racist ideas about Africa and indigenous peoples. Could you talk a little bit more about this fallacy of conservation? Yes, I think that for a lot of people uh, hearing this program, and it must be quite shocking to learn that the Maasai, especially the Maasai are very famous. Uh, so the Maasai are being evicted in the name of conservation. But I, um, I think that the violence of Luliondo actually reveals the true face of conservation. In Africa and Asia, hundreds of thousands of indigenous people are facing evictions, torture, murder in the name of conservation. That means that for creating what we think are good things like national parks or tiger reserves, um, governments and conservation NGOs, some of them quite famous like WWF or Wildlife Conservation Society or African parks are pushing out the people that are living and dependent on this environment. It's a little bit what happened in the US. I think that people uh, maybe in the US are, are uh, have heard uh, about uh, the first national parks like Yellowstone or Yosemite, where indigenous people have been evicted um, to preserve this um, fictional wilderness. What I mean by fictional is that the wilderness as a concept actually doesn't exist. Most of the places we think they are wild, like the Amazon or the Serengeti or the Congo Basin Forest are actually have actually been shaped by indigenous peoples. So it's a little bit similar what happened in the US, this model um, that uh, in US, US people call American best idea uh, was actually imported in Africa and Asia. And, and this is the current model of conservation that we call fortress conservation. And it's based on the idea that to protect nature, you have to evict the people that are living there, that indigenous peoples and other people are a threat to the environment and they have to be evicted. This is racist because it doesn't consider the important role that indigenous people have had on shaping this landscape. And it's colonialist because it gives the land, put the land uh, under the control of white-led NGOs, for example, WWF, but also um, elites, as is happening in Kenya, where more of the land belongs to white elites. So um, it's creating a lot of conflicts um, 
uh, among indigenous peoples and, and these NGOs. But it's also, um, it's not just destroying this model of conservation, it's not just destroying the life and land of indigenous peoples. It's actually not good for biodiversity because what happens is when indigenous peoples are evicted, once they are gone, um, what happened to these protected areas is that they become open to mass tourism and hunting, for example, trophy hunting, like in the case of Luliondo, or other or other kind of activities like extractive industries can go in. What we know for sure is that 80% of biodiversity, 80% is an indigenous people's land. Scientific evidence show that they can take care of their environment better than anyone else. And if we compare a protected area, so-called protected area, to indigenous territories in those countries where these territories are recognized, what we see is that there is less deforestation and uh, biodiversity goals are achieved better in indigenous territories. So what survival has been doing for a long time is to try to decolonize the way we think about nature protection, try to bring a different image. The images that we, th we think about when we think about nature or when we think about Africa are not really the things that are happening on the field. And we are trying to push for the recognition of indigenous people's rights. In the case of the Maasai, it's a very, very uh, clear example. The reason why the Maasai are today evicted or are today pushed out is because the government wants to transform this land into a game reserve. So only uh, people doing trophy hunting will be able to access and conservation. So for conservation purpose. So that means that the people that have been key in taking care of this environment and people that live in sustainable as pastoralist societies are, are going to be, are going to lose their land. So someone else with a lot of money, sometimes especially white people can access to uh, for luxury tourism or, or for hunting. It's contradictory and it seems quite crazy, but it's actually the normal thing. This is what is going on in mostly all protected areas in Africa and Asia. Yeah, and I, as you pointed out, the, the Maasai are, are quite famous. So if their, if their fame isn't protecting them in this kind of situation, one can only imagine what is happening to tribal peoples who have no kind of, uh, you know, panache internationally, uh, so to speak. And I I know that you've also worked on uh, on the issue of uncontacted uh, uncontacted peoples, and I'm wondering how this also plays a role uh, because their their ability to stay uncontacted and continue their ways of life are continuously threatened, not just by conservation but also by you know dirty energy projects and deforestation and things like that in the Amazon. Yes, and not only by most most of the people think that yes, of, of course. Uh, sorry, most of the people knows about uh, loggers and and gold miners, but very few people talk about the missionaries. Um, so people that are trying to get in contact with the uncontacted people that should be uncontacted um, to convert them uh, into usually evangelical religion, and this is something that got is getting worse during uh, Bolsonaro presidency, as he has been supported by evangelic groups uh, to win the elections. And it's something that we have been pointing out and, and uh, supporting indigenous peoples working um, against this in the region. I'm I'm also curious how how does support of you know what's going on in. Uh, um, with the Maasai or the Bushmen, for instance, how does 
support look? Because I feel like oftentimes, and you've brought this up with NGOs, like trying to help, and this happens a lot in the US, right? Like a, an NGO will come into a, an indigenous or a, a black community. And it's oftentimes, you know, rich white people. And they're like, let me tell you how we're going to help you. And it's like, that's not helpful because you're just imposing your will upon these people, which is really the, the, the foundational problem. So how does, how does Survival International go about supporting without imposing that will? Yes, well, actually, um, and this is quite an easy uh, um, question for us, because what we try to do is not to only to support indigenous peoples, but we are trying to do it by changing the way he, we here in the so-called global north um, see and act toward indigenous peoples. The conservation campaigns or campaign to decolonize conservation is about changing the way we think about conservation. So this is the way that we are supporting them. We are not supporting them to explaining what they have to do, but explaining what, uh, to us, people from the global north, what we are doing wrong. Mostly of these conservation projects that are destroying the lives and lands of indigenous peoples are supported and funded by Western governments. By this, I mean the European Commission, Germany, the US, United States, and, and uh, UK and France are among the biggest funders of this conservation, of this model of conservation. So uh, for example, the US uh, Congress, uh, sorry, no, the US Natural um, uh, Resource Committee has just voted a law to stop human rights abuses in the name of conservation. Now the law has to pass uh, to the Congress, uh, to the House and then to the Senate. So it's not a law uh, for the moment. But it shows um, this part of this has been done with our work uh, by um, campaigning against these abuses. So now there is a first acknowledgement that conservation is not always good. Conservation can be done wrongly and uh, taxpayers shouldn't be paying for this. So these are all changes that we, um, this is the kind of change we are doing to support indigenous peoples because the root of their problems are in our hands. And, and, and so it, it's, uh, uh, we, um, Global North people that need to stop doing things that are harming them. Um, so this is the way we act in survival. We try to radically change public opinion. We're not going to tell indigenous people what they have to do. What we also try to do is to amplify their voices. In the case of the Maasai, they told me directly, we need international attention. Our government is doing this um, for, for money and, and we need international attention to stop this money going on. And this is what we are trying to do. So we are uh, putting out their statements, their pictures, their videos on social media, and, and, and trying to get journalists to cover the issue. So the more attention there is, the less uh, easy it is for the government to keep violating uh, Maasai rights. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. We continue to be joined by Fiore Longo, campaigner at Survival International. This is something that we really try to do on Project Censored is to cover things that most corporate media won't cover. Um, and you basically, I mean, you you never hear on, on corporate media in the U.S., conservation is bad. <laughs> like they would never run with that story. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of that has to do with what you were talking about, the paradigm that that Africa is uh, is kind of the backyard of the United States and Europe. That uh, that that we have a sense of ownership of it, if not you know directly in terms of violent colonialist takeovers, in terms of tourism and safaris and uh, and and stuff like that. And we're supporting their economy by going to these uh, game reserves and da, 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 and how that really has to shift. And and I'm wondering if you also have like input in terms of how you know, uh, how people, just regular folks, not politicians necessarily, but how regular folks in the U.S. or in Europe might be able to support such a, a paradigm shift. Yes, uh, partially the reason why the Maasai are being evicted, or that's what they they feel, is that tourists don't want to see Maasai. They, go, they want to see Maasai when they're in their bomas, in their houses, and, and they perform for them, but they don't want to see their cows. Uh, around. Uh, and this is not because tourists are evil. This is because the images we got since our childhood are about wildlife alone. The first time I went to Loriondo and, and, and Serengeti and Gorongoro, I was completely shocked to see these zebras with next to Maasai houses and next to cows. I was like, why I haven't never seen this? It's just the first time. And I remember my, I was shocked. And my Maasai um, uh, contact and friend was saying, why are you so shocked? This is the reality. And I was trying to explain to him, this is not our reality. We never see this in National Geographic. We never see, think about Lion King, the, mo- the uh, Disney movie. That movie was inspired uh, from a, a real place that exists in reality in Kenya. And those were lands of Maasai where the Maasai have been evicted or very, uh, very, very recent Obama's documentary uh, in, in Netflix about national parks, all those places in the documentary were the house of indigenous peoples, but you can't see indigenous peoples there because the indigenous people have been evicted. Um, so it is about changing our way of thinking about nature because if then the tourists go and, and see the, the cows and then they say, oh my God, we, what, what are these cows doing thing here? I thought they were just giraffe and lions, of course, this pushed the government to evict the Maasai. The Maasai told me tourism is a poison to us. And I know they don't mean bad, but then they come here to only see this wildlife and then this help the government to say, you see, they don't want to see the Maasai. So this is one of the things I always encourage people to do. It's very difficult, but we have to change the way we see nature. And when we go to visit a place, we have to inform ourselves about, first about what is going on in that place. Today in Gorongoro Crater, uh, Gorongoro Conservation Area, just next to Loliondo, they're evicting the Maasai also, but tourism, hotels and lodges are welcome. And, and it's super <laughs> contradictory because they, these pollute a lot, and, but the Maasai are being evicted in the name of protecting nature. So before visiting a place, inform yourself and, and, and be part of this. You know, it is tourist money that is also funding this kind of eviction. And I'm not suggesting oh, people shouldn't uh, go anymore. I think that they, they, they should stop going if there are human rights violations, of course, but they should also have the power by, by being tourists 
to ask questions and to raise these issues with, with local uh, authorities or with the local um, uh, tour operators. And it's something that people can really do. Yeah, I think, you know, the highlight there is really inform yourself, which I think is, that's, that's, a, that's a battle, <laughs> uh, particularly because, you know, if I were to look up Maasai um, and Kenya or Maasai and, you know, this game reserve, I would see the pictures that you're talking about, the National Geographic pictures. Like, it's really hard to find, to dig and be able to find the, the information that is an actual picture of reality. And another thing that you said kind of uh, reminded me of in the Pacific Northwest in the US, there's a lot of uh, wildfires because of climate chaos, uh, but there's also a lot of discussion of having the indigenous you know, land back and having the indigenous be stewards and highlighting the importance of like what stewardship means. It doesn't mean leaving land and just let it like be like, I don't, I can, we can't touch it. We couldn't possibly. It means being a part, recognizing that we're a part of these ecosystems and therefore using things like fire to actually help manage the land and be stewards of the land. And, and I think this is like a really big paradigm shift uh, that needs to happen. And um, I'm curious, like, where would you tell folks to look for legitimate, uh, legitimate uh, pictures or legitimate reporting about Africa? I wish I could have a website to, to address them, but actually we are working on a guide to decolonize images and language for filmmakers and, and wildlife documentarists and journalists because it's very difficult to find a real um, and clear images and understanding. I, of course, invite them to visit survival page, the colonized conservation page and the big green light. Um, and especially to watch our videos, we have this project called Tribal Voice um, Project. And we try to uh, film uh, or, or we also receive films, but some of, sometimes we, we film by yourself about indigenous people living um, or, or, or have been living inside protected areas or have been evicted from protected areas. And they can explain how is their life now and how was before. And I think they get, there's nothing better than hear directly from indigenous peoples. Um, and, and, and this project is not just all conservation, we do it for, for other uh, campaigns. But in the case of the conservation, it's just very important because of this kind of um, uh, this kind of uh, reluctance from uh, any other media to report about this. And I, I say this all the time, but I think I repeat it because I truly believe that conservation is one of the lastest and most powerful myth of the Western way of thinking. And people are like, well, we, we, we can't believe in anything. No, we know by social media and information that everything is fake, but we want just to believe that there is something good in this world and this thing has to be conservation. And I, I don't want to be terrible. I don't want to be a bad person, but the truth is that also conservation can be done in, the, in, the, in, the bad, in a bad way. And what you were talking about the fires, it's a clear example of the completely irrationality of conservation. We think conservation is scientific, but actually it's based on ideological assumptions. Uh, the fire, the, the, this kind of burning, what Indians call litter fires, burning parts of them, of them dry leaves or other things uh, in order to give back to them the land uh, fertility. Uh, it's something that has been done in a lot of places for a long time. And it was the British colonizers in Africa and Asia that said that this activity was banned because burning the land was something that Europeans used to do in the middle age 
So for them it was a completely a, a superstition practice. And actually now we know by science that this can be, when done properly as indigenous peoples do, can be great for the land and can be uh, great to avoid big fires. Um, so this is another proof. What I want to say is that ecosystems are, are made by humans and by plants and by animals. It's not just the plant and animals. We can't just separate nature from humans. This is something that is at the base of the destruction of the environment. For indigenous peoples, nature and humans are the same thing. So they live in a way uh, that when they consume, of course, they consume resources, but they make sure these resources are going to be there for the next generations. They don't have supermarkets. They need to preserve their land in order to be to be able to give something to their kids. Um, so I think that we it's not just a shift on, on, on conservation. We have to shift the way we think about indigenous peoples because there is a lot of racism around. And also ways about how we think about ourselves. All, all this is about the fact that we think that white people and, and global North people and science have the reply to every question of the world. Well, the shift is to say, we don't know. Indigenous peoples and other people that have been living in those lands for generations must know more than us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, as you pointed out, these are, you know, beautiful lands that are being taken from the Maasai and from indigenous peoples because they're so beautiful. And it's because that they've been taking care of them for since ancient times that they are so beautiful. Uh, and, 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 and that's, uh, that, that's that reason there. I actually, I kind of wanted to, to, to shift in the last few minutes here to, to ask you about a, uh, your opinion on something that recently came out, the IEA Africa Energy Outlook report uh, came out and environmental as well as anti-colonial groups are highlighting the fact that the war in Europe is pushing demand for fossil fuel projects elsewhere and elsewhere being Africa, uh, among other places. Um, and uh, And this too is cloaked in like concern for the continent's development, right? Like, oh, well, we want to make sure that Africa is developed properly. So we need all these dirty energy projects. And at the same time, uh, there have also been people who've pointed out that, oh, this would be a great place to put up solar farms. Uh, you know, uh, 350.org points out that Africa has 60% of the best solar resources globally, but 1% of installed solar capacity. Uh, now, of course, solar farms are better than an oil pipeline, but in terms of how the 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 how people in Africa are treated, we're still talking about what needs to be done in Africa as opposed to what Africa Africa's peoples, which are not just like one people. Uh, by the way, I think there's also that misconception. What people in these places want to want to do and how they can be part of this decision making. Uh, and so I'd be curious if you've if you've seen this also going on in terms of fossil fuel exploration or, you know, clean energy and how that also affects uh, indigenous and tribal people's ability to, to live. Yes, I also think that the same clean and dirty energies are very misleading because what, uh, what we call green energies can be very harmful for them, can be very dirty as fossil fuels in different ways. And we have been pointing out this for a long time uh, and we don't have to be to go very, very far away. The Sami right now with our indigenous populations, I guess, you, you know, in, in North Europe, are um, being very, very impacted by so-called green uh, energy projects. 
Um, so uh, we, we have to be very careful because the question here is not about with what kind of energy we are using, it's how much energy we are using. Of course, fossil fuels is, is terrible energy for different reasons, uh, but we should not forget that it's also about a scale. Um, until we want to change our way of life in, 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 global, in the global north, we won't be able to save this planet, the, the climate, stop climate change, protect the biodiversity. And all these solutions that we are trying to impose are, are usually at the expenses of other people. Uh, we, today, we talk about saving biodiversity through green investments. We are talking about carbon offsetting. Uh, so uh, instead of, for example, Netflix uh, stop uh, producing emissions, they think they can compensate their emissions by um, funding a project somewhere in this case, specific case in Kenya, um, where uh, they are, they, where the, the project is saving emissions. But when you go to the field and to talk with the people, what really happened is that the least responsible for climate change are actually impacted by these projects of planting trees. They plant trees usually in, in other people's land, so people lose the access to the land and evict the people. And we, uh, or, or other kind of projects that are uh, so-called uh, carbon uh, offsetting projects. We can see it also with protected areas. Uh, so we, we think we want to save biodiversity, let's create protected areas in other people's land. So there are all these projects that are exporting. It's, it's just, it's green colonialism. We are um, actually making the people the least response, the people that the least contribute to climate change. We are making us making them, uh, in a certain way, we are sacrificing them to, so, to compensate emissions. Um, so I think that when we talk about any kind of energetic pro program, we always have to ask ourselves, um, this is really contributing to stop climate change and to protect biodiversity, or it's just a way to make our way of life continuous while we feel just better about it. And I think there is a lot about uh, this, and it's very difficult to talk because people said, oh, well, if you criticize green energies or if you criticize green investments, so there's no other alternative. Um, so you are you are in the in the side of fossil fuel companies. We are very far away from being from uh, next to fossil fuel companies. Survivor has been campaigning against coal and other destructive projects like this for years. What we are saying is that there is not a magical recipe. It's not all of a sudden we we pass from fossil fuels to so-called clean energy and the world is sorted out because we keep consuming. Uh, and as, as in the same way we were doing, and it's our way of life that is destroying other people. And we can't fix our way of life. We can't talk about green capitalism. It doesn't exist green capital. Capitalism is destruction of the environment because the goal is uh, endless accumulation. And this is something we have to think about it. Independently, we are capitalists or anti-capitalists is not the problem. For me, the question is, that can we keep uh, with this self-deception, thinking that we can fix our life, that we all of a sudden going to simply replace fossil fuels with other sort of energy and then magic. You know, the world will be a better place. Well, it just, it, it's something that we hear a lot, especially from climate activists and also politicians. And it, this is not, not the solution. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you highlighted that because that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot that, uh, you know, we have to consume less 
regardless of whatever that, you know, whatever the it is that we're, that we're, uh, you know, fueling with, uh, I recall somebody that I was talking to said, yeah, I read that there's this great new, uh, there's this great new compound that's made out of algae that can make plastic. And she was like, but let's say that, in, that we had like the same plastic consumption, we would need to take over X amount of wetlands or, you know, just to grow algae. And she's like, so that's not the answer. Then you'd be overrun with algae and that's going to destroy ecosystems too. It's like the scale has to be turned down because we can't actually consume this much. I think if everyone consumed as much as people in the US, we'd need five planets. So that would be five planets worth of algae or whatever whatever else like you fill in the blank with. Uh, so I think that's a very important aspect that is not talked about enough, particularly when you combine that with the uh, the continuation of the colonialist mindset yeah so yeah well thank you so much i really appreciate you taking the time uh to 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 speak uh with us on the show please tell folks where they could find more about the work that y'all do and uh and 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 read more see more Mm, yes well uh, i think that you could go i am very bad with social media but uh but we have social media instagram and and twitter and facebook survival international and also, uh, but I recommend especially uh, the website and, and just Google Decolonized Conservation Survival International and you will find our page. I recommend more this because we have uh, an entire section about resources on colonial conservation where uh, people can um, find articles because it's something so new and difficult that I think that people need really much more details than just a website. So you can find all sorts of information there and you can subscribe to get our news, um, our news so an email every now and then. And I think this is important because we will inform um, people, for example, when our guide to decolonizing language and conservation is out or at the listed news, if we are organizing a protest or we are um, doing something um, that we need the support of the people, they will get uh, those emails. We have also an office in US, in Auckland, uh, in California, in case uh, that information is relevant. <laughs> You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored radio show. Thank you for listening. 
We are very excited right now to be joined by Jimmy Dunson, who is a writer, activist, and co-founder of Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. Jimmy has a passion for building mutual aid survival programs and has been involved with many movements for a better world, including refugee solidarity efforts, peer support, farm worker justice, solidarity-based disaster relief, and more. Jimmy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So now we are into hurricane season, which is officially between June 1st and November 30th. Uh, and uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and o Atmospheric Administration, has predicted a quote, above normal and busy year, which is really just doing their best to not say the words climate change <laughs> as if it would cause them to spontaneously combust. Um, and they've suggested that folks prepare ahead of time for these storms which is besides being vague, it also leaves out the key point that preparing requires a framework or structure of sorts that looks out for people, that supports the needs that exist and arise in these situations. And by design, our system has essentially none of these. So uh, for folks who aren't familiar, can you talk about the work that Mutual Aid Disaster Relief does and what kind of preparations uh, are actually helpful at a time like this? A mutual aid disaster relief is a people-powered disaster relief network based on the principles of solidarity, mutual aid, and autonomous direct action. And we work with communities, especially you know those um, historically marginalized or left out of traditional recovery efforts to uh, assist in, in contributing to a communal recovery. And we do this through a number of mutual aid survival programs. We uh, distribute supplies. We do uh, wellness or uh, medical assistance and uh, help with solar or other sustainable infrastructure and uh, rebuilding, clearing debris. In general, try to listen to the self-determined needs of those impacted and respond however we're able to. And uh, specifically for preparedness, we situate our relief work at, in the larger context of liberation and struggle for a more just, better world. And so uh, we, what we found, you know, like obviously it, it, it does help, you know, on the individual level to have some water that, that you've, you've keep for when the tap's not working or, or something like that. But what we found is the relational infrastructure is actually the most important, that the connections we have with each other, you know, both locally, regionally, nationally, internationally, is, is really what makes a communal recovery effort possible. And also the best thing that I think folks can, can do to prepare is be involved in our movements for a better world. Already doing mutual aid programs, on, on a local level all the time. And also whether it's opposing a pipeline or, you know, being out in the streets for, for Black lives, you know, those type of movements, they lay the groundwork for more connected, more empowered individuals and communities that can respond. And likewise, when we fertilize the movement for mutual aid and for mutual aid during disasters, um, we're also fertilizing the movement for these other movement, uh, other movements for, for justice in a better world. So it's kind of comes back and forth. We say that the best form of disaster preparedness is community organizing. 
Yeah, and I wanted to I wanted to touch on that briefly because I think uh, for for folks who aren't familiar with the distinctions between mutual aid and, and charity, this sort of relational infrastructure I really like that phrase that you used uh, is 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 kind of a key point. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the significant differences that uh, between mutual aid disaster relief and, for instance, some large you know like the Red Cross is something that's frequently used that people uh, understandably don't trust. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about like those significant differences? Yeah, um, top-down institutions such as FEMA or the Red Cross, they often have a lot of resources at hand. They have a lot of money, but what they don't have oftentimes is people power. They don't have the bottom-up connections in 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 community, and and also the, they uh, those top-down institutions often don't prioritize listening and responding to people's self-determined needs. So a bottom-up approach, you know, one one of our slogans, of course, that a lot of mutual aid groups is solidarity, not charity, and so we're listening to those most impacted. And at the same time, being flexible and responsive to their self-determined needs and also challenging the root causes. So both resource extraction that causes more extreme uh, hurricanes and, and such, but also you know, our take on the economy that, that creates poverty and vulnerability in, in, to begin with. In general, you know, what, what I meant by relational infrastructure is that our strongest asset it, it's of course wonderful when people are able to to bring you know like solar infrastructure or we're working on a mobile kitchen bus right now uh, to to respond after disasters and that's really important but it's not as important as the bonds that we build with each other on a peer to peer individual level and you know across regions as well with mutual aid groups connected with each other. And those type of bonds with each other, we know we can call on each other uh, for support when something happens. And solidarity and mutual aid is all about relationships. It's about sharing resources, but also very significantly, it's also about sharing power with each other and all those impacted. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that I really liked that I can't remember who said it uh, that that you know mutual aid is basically the neighborhood taking care of itself as opposed to this idea of like somebody coming in and being like let me tell you what you need and let me tell you what's wrong yeah. <laughs> and and oftentimes um, the large institutions or charities they might give what is needed on a physical level but often it comes with stigma, with a sense of shame. It's it's done with a downward gaze. And, you know, what, one thing that having this communal, people-powered, bottom-up response is, is that it's, you know, everybody receiving what they can, what they need, and, and giving what they can. And it's much more dignified of a, of a way to take care of ourselves and each other rather than the downward gaze that comes uh, with top-down charity efforts. And I'm also curious, just uh, with regards to hurricane season specifically, are there hot spots that y'all are looking at in particular that that folks should be aware of, either because they live in those areas or because they want to support and might live close by? We try to do what we can everywhere all at once. Of course, we're limited by our own capacity. We're all volunteer. You know, nobody nobody's paid, nobody's staff. 
Uh, so it depends on everybody's availability, you know, at that time and other commitments. Obviously, with you know hurricane season, you know, anything in the Gulf and the Southeast, there's probably going to be a mobilization around. And also, hurricane season pretty closely aligns with at least the worst of it aligns with fire season out west. And and so, you know, there's um, there's often mobilizations related to specific uh, catastrophic fires on the west coast. And then, you know, everything in between, I, I would encourage all your listeners, if they're involved with a local mutual aid effort or community group, or even, you know, just in their local community, if a disaster happens in their location and they need backup, um, mutual aid disaster relief is there to help in one way or another, and we can figure that out together. And is there a place where people, is there like a list of existing outposts or where where you know that you have folks that are ready to mobilize uh, with and for mutual aid disaster relief? We have a couple lists of partners on our website. We have one, it's a collective care directory, you know, mostly a, a pandemic related. There's a beautiful flowering of mutual aid groups all over the world. And so we've connected with many of them and partnered with many of them. And there's a, a directory on our website, mutualaidisasterleague.org of, of those. And then before that, we also had a a more general directory of mutual aid groups and disaster response groups that that are similarly aligned that we've partnered with on our website under a co-conspirators section. And mutual aid disaster relief, we don't have local chapters per se. We, a couple of years ago, we asked ourselves that question, you know, should we have local chapters? And we decided against it to encourage local groups to not be a carbon copy, but to be location context specific and have their own structure, have their own decision making, have their own fundraising and finances and and relate to us as equals, you know, rather than us be an umbrella organization. And and so that's actually what's happened, especially since COVID. There's been thousands of mutual aid groups that have popped up. And even though we're separate, there's a lot of overlap. A lot of us have involved with mutual aid disaster relief and involved in local mutual aid groups and just wear different hats depending on the, the context and the situation. Yeah, well, and I really like, I really, one of the things that I think is so cool about like that concept of not creating carbon copies is that it really speaks to the concept of mutual aid being like, you're doing what you need in your space. So that would look different. Obviously, like how you respond to a fire is not going to be the same that you respond to, to a hurricane. And, and, and I, I really like that it also speaks to the idea that you don't have to have this list of things. You don't have to have this list of abilities or whatever to start a mutual aid group. It's really just about that concept of, hey, we need to look out for each other. And how does that look like for us? And deciding upon that as a group, as opposed to getting these top-down rules and regulations and and, uh, and a how-to list. Yeah, and we also, our logo is a Swiss army knife. And that's kind of how we see ourselves. The movement is we're not able to do everything all the time, but we're trying to be flexible, like a multi-tool for the larger autonomous disaster relief and mutual aid movements. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. We continue to be joined by Jimmy Dunson of Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. So I kind of want to shift a little bit uh, to, well, a tactic, one might say, but <laughs> a, uh, an offering that's coming out soon via Rebel Hearts Publishing. It's a book called Building Power While the Lights Are Out, Disasters, Mutual Aid, and Dual Power. And you're the editor of this anthology. And I, I, I personally hate when people ask me, they're like, so tell me about your movie. I'm like, that's not a question. So instead, we've, we've covered the mutual aid aspect. But I think sometimes people hear the words dual power and they're like, what is that? I'm not really sure what that means. Uh, and it can mean different things, like particularly if you're coming from like a liberal uh, side of, of the conversation. So I'm curious, like in this context, what does dual power mean? I see it as the bottom-up transformation of society by building counter-institutions that at the same time, shore of resources and power from below, um, and also challenge oppressive forces, whether it be the state or capitalism or imperialism, colonialism, uh, but simultaneously building up alternative prefigurative infrastructure to challenge power. So I guess maybe another way of, of saying that too is fighting the existing beasts while building something that we actually want. Exactly. And in my introductory piece, I mentioned um, there's two metaphors that are often used by other folks in the in the anthology as well that kind of illustrate in, in a more symbolic form the hope and the power of, of, of dual power. And that's cracks and seeds. And cracks, you know, kind of represent like moments in time or history where more is possible and also the fragileness of, of power, of, you know, that top-down approach. And nature uh, tells us, teaches us that the best way to widen those cracks is from below, getting a little seed into that crack and growing, you know, and actually rather than destruction from above, it's creation from below that destroys, that widens those cracks and makes more possible and reclaims streets and sidewalks and buildings. I love that. And so I'm also curious because you, and, and you actually already touched on this, uh, so it, it flows into this question well, because there are lots of, I feel like there are lots of books out there that are how-tos, and I feel like a lot of people want a how-to. You know, we're kind of programmed in this system to have directions handed, like, this is how you do this. This is how one does this specific thing. And so assuming that this book is not like a how-to-do mutual aid or how-to-build dual power, talk a little bit about those essays and, and how it differs from DIY toolkit book. So it's actually a, a, around 20 different contributors who've, who've included pieces, and they really complement each other really well. They're wide, wide, diverse perspectives of mutual aid and disaster response and dual power. And it's really diverse in a lot of different ways. There's some that use academic style of writing, you know, their style of writing is more academic. Others, it's very, a lot more informal. And then some people talk about um, mutual aid in the context of COVID, some people in the context of hurricane or a fire. And then some people like uh, Klee has a wonderful piece about in, indigenous mutual aid and how that has grown. Oftentimes we think of mutual aid in terms of originating with Kropotkin and Klee Benelli, you know, drives home the point that um, Kropotkin just 
named something that that he saw in the natural world and in indigenous communities. And then, you know, there's there's some people that speak about mutual aid from a Black liberation perspective, and then others from a more rural um, mutual aid perspective and organizing the challenges and openings that exist in doing mutual aid work in, in more rural spaces. And so it's a, it's a wide variety of different perspectives and positions that fill in the gaps of each other um, really well, I think. Each one is very different. So there's, uh, and both individuals and organizations are represented. And so for for some, there are kind of like in real time describing, you know, like what it's like doing mutual aid after disaster and the context of both the top-down infrastructure or the institutions and also their, how they can get in the way of of doing mutual aid, and then also the physical geography of you know down power lines and and, and such. But many of the many of the authors also talk about vision and and ideas for the future to build the movement and continue to to move towards collective liberation through through mutual aid. Yeah, I love that 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 to me is 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 kind of one of the key points of mutual aid is that it's not only a response to the shittiness of the current system, but it's also like a way to build a future. It's a way to emulate how we want the future to look. And I also I, I also like that in the description, there's the larger issue of disaster. Like, what do we call a disaster? And it's not just hurricanes or fires, right? There's an overarching point of disaster as a status quo. Like, we are living through the disaster of capitalism and colonialism and white supremacy. And in, in terms of that, like either in the book or just in general, like how do you feel that, that, that mutual aid is a response, not just to specific uh, disasters here and there through weather, but through the larger aspect of these overarching disasters? Sometimes in, in our training uh, that we, that we did a couple of years ago when we did the like a little tour around the, the country, one, one thing that we mentioned was this concept of invisible disasters. So even though a, a hurricane or a fire or a tornado hasn't demolished the infrastructure at Pine Ridge, still the lack of electricity is on par with Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And it's not a climate-related disaster that did that. It is colonialism. It's the legacy of our settler colonial white supremacist state. And if we're serious about responding to self-determined needs and holistic, you know, caring for each other, it's got to include these other disasters that might not be on people's radar as much like colonialism and capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. The the disasters are many and myriad. And so uh, tell folks where they could find the book and also where they could find more information about mutual aid disaster relief. The book is on rebelheartspublishing.com and mutual aid disaster relief is at mutualaiddisasterrelief.org and on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Facebook at mutual aid disaster relief or on Twitter, mutual aid relief. That was too long. I'm, I'm excited about th- this, this book coming out and you also um, have, have a piece in the book as well. I just want to mention that really quick. Thank you for contributing and really excited to see all these wonderful, powerful voices in communication with each other on the page and, and what that will, what will come out of that too. 
Yeah, well, it was an honor to to be asked to be a part of it. And I'm I'm so stoked to to be a part of it and to be in that incredibly rad group of humans. So thank you for that. And might I suggest that it makes a great radical read for your mutual aid group or for your your group, whatever. <laughs> um yes. and so uh thank you so much for taking the time to to sit down. Yeah, thank you very much. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-hosting with Mickey Huff. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org. And see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>